last couple weeks, we have had some really good speakers, don't you think? A uh, couple weeks back, we had Heath uh, from Convoy of Hope, and he talked about grace and went into some really deep stuff from he- in Hebrew and stuff like that, but it was awesome. And then last week, our very own Chi Alpha International Dreka, Director, Dreka, I was thinking already ahead, Dreka, <laughs> Becca Clay brought the word, and she did a stellar job. And let me just tell you, folks, it is not easy to get up here and stand in front of you all. And something that I preach to the staff and to my leadership team is transparency. We ask our leadership team to, in their life groups, to, to just model reality to people. Just to allow people to see into your life and see how things really are. And if we're going to ask our leadership team to do that, the staff, the give years, we expect to do it too. And what Becca got up here and spoke last week, that was pretty intimate, folks. And so that is tough to do. And so I just want to thank you for that transparency. And uh, it was a great word, Becca. Great job. Uh, and in the next couple weeks, we got some more great speakers that are going to be up to bat. Uh, next week, Miss Jarvis is going to be bringing the word. And then the week after that uh, is Miss Campbell. And so we are excited about that. But till then, you got stuck with me. So let's go ahead and jump into things. Thanks. That's why we keep Tyler on staff. He's like, hey, yes. We've... There we go. Someone lead the cheer. All right. Uh, hey, last time I got up here and spoke, I was talking about the vine and the branches found in John chapter 15 and how Jesus wants us to be grafted into him so that we can live fully. When I say live fully in him, we're talking about his characteristics, his strength, his ability to survive and thrive even in the hardest situations. He wants each of us to have those characteristics. And that is the heart of discipleship. P.S., that's kind of what we're talking about this whole year. This is important. And I gave you a few keys that lead us into a life of fullness. And last, uh, last time I talked, the second one, first one was being grafted. The second one was obeying. Uh, according to verse 10, it was, uh, when, we, when you obey my commandments, you remain in my love, just as I obey my Father's commands and remain in his love. Basically, Jesus saying is to be bound to me and my love, obey me. And this is a critical part of discipleship and being Jesus' disciple. You see, it's actually impossible to be like Jesus. It's impossible to be grafted to Jesus. And it's impossible to experience his love the way he wants without obeying him. And I think we can all agree that's not always easy to do, right? And it's not always easy, an easy thing to accept either. So there's something in our human nature that we don't like to be told what to do. 
but that doesn't make it any less true. And I'll be honest, it kind of started me on a little thought process for tonight's message and the topic that we're going to look at tonight. I, I love Jesus. I love his word. I love his parables. I like his interactions with people because Jesus likes to press people. He didn't come to make everything easy. He came to give you life, but he didn't come to give you a soft, fluffy life either. Jesus likes to kind of uh, speak some hard truths to people. And so tonight, we're going to be looking, if you're looking for a message for tonight's message, uh, we're going to call it, if you're looking for a title for tonight's message, let me slow down a little bit, okay? (laughs) I'm excited. It comes out. Sometimes I can't keep up with myself. If you're looking for a title for tonight's message, so we can have a little bit of fun with it, we're going to call it Truth Bombs with Jesus, okay? Specifically, I want to look at a conversation that Jesus had with one of his disciples, or at least someone who would eventually become one of his disciples. And he unleashes a few truth bombs on him in this conversation. Just so we're clear, Jesus had many disciples. Uh, Not just the 12 that we commonly think of. I mean, don't get me wrong, that was his life group. That's what you see his most interaction with. That's where, you know, most of the discipleship happens in the Gospels. And yet, Jesus had a lot of disciples. The Word talks that he had, he sent out 77 disciples to go do stuff. Uh, He had women who financed his ministry, and they were the first ones at the tomb. Jesus had a lot of people following him around. Tonight, our text is going to be found in John chapter 3. And it's the conversation between Jesus and a man named Nicodemus. Uh, This conversation contains, it is the most famous verse in the Bible, John 3.16. And I'm going to be honest with you, we're not going to talk that much about John 3.16. Not that it's not awesome, because it is, but I care about what's leading up to John 3.16. I think too often we kind of pick and choose the verses that we like, and we're forgetting to see what got us to that verse to begin with. And that's my goal for tonight, is kind of to lead us up to that place. This story actually kind of parallels Jesus' conversation with the rich young ruler. They're similar in a whole lot of ways, and yet they are two different people. I imagine Jesus had a lot of people sneak into him at night, asking him questions. As we get started, uh, I want you to know a little bit more about the man Jesus is talking to here. In Gospel of John, we see Nicodemus three separate times. And each time, we see him getting bolder and bolder and becoming more of a disciple of Jesus. Uh, In Jewish written history from around this time, there's actually a respected teacher known for his holiness 
and his generosity that at a certain point in his career started to perform miracles. What do you think that teacher's name was? Nicodemus, folks. Nicodemus. What I'm saying is, he was a teacher, something changes, he's still a teacher, and God uses him. That's where he ends up. I want us to see where he starts. You see, when Nicodemus first approaches Jesus, he's not a disciple, okay? He recognizes greatness. He is a teacher. We'll get into a little bit more about that. But he recognizes another great teacher. And this makes him curious about Jesus. And you see, Nicodemus, he's a little bit different from the normal people that Jesus would preach to. You see, often Jesus taught with stories or parables so that the people could better understand the truths that he was trying to teach them. This wasn't going to be a problem for Nicodemus. Let me uh, give you a little bit of a profile on this guy, okay? One, he's what we call a Pharisee. If you're not a you know, if you're not familiar with what a Pharisee is. Basically, it's a sect of Judaism. They had about 6,000 of them at the time. These were the ultra-intense, the ultra-dedicated black ops of Judaism. Okay? <laughs> they, were, they were the cream of the crop. Okay? Uh, how many of you like uh, comic book movies, comic book heroes? Avengers, Black Panther, that stuff. Okay, we have a few very enthusiastic people. Every superhero has what is called an arch nemesis, correct? If Jesus is a superhero, which he is, his arch nemesis would be Satan. Very good. But every comic book fan knows that you have to have some other villains for your hero to fight so that you can have more movies and make more money, right? Okay. Well, that's where the Pharisees come in, all right? They become Jesus' secondary opponent in his life. They are a constant pain uh, throughout the Gospels for Jesus. This is more of Tom going on in limb. This may be one of those times. I may be wrong. Jesus may correct me later. There's some reason for what I'm going to say, and just hang with me here. I don't actually, I don't necessarily believe that the Pharisees started out this way. Every time you hear about the Pharisees in the Gospels, they are an enemy of Jesus. I don't necessarily think they started that way, though. Um, this comp. This conversation that takes place starts really, really early in Jesus' ministry. In verse 2, Nicodemus says to Jesus, Rabbi, teacher, we all know that God has sent you to teach us. Your miraculous signs are evidence that God is with you. Here's the thing. Unless Nicodemus liked to talk in the third person, there's a good chance that he is referring to the people group that he is a part of. And not just the Jews as a whole, but the Pharisees. Okay, These guys, they thought they were right. 
They were very pious. They were, I believe, initially impressed with Jesus. Probably because they thought He was one of them. You see, in the chapter before, Jesus makes a whip and opens a can of whoop on the people in the temple. Alright? It is what it is. He throws out the merchants. He protects His Father's house. And when you think you're right and you're pious, I can see them sitting back there and be like, yep, that's right. You see, between that and the miracles he performed, at one point in time, they probably thought he was going to become one of them. But if you spend any time in the Word, you know that quickly changes. The changes when Jesus starts pointing out the sin and the emptiness of their religion. And when the people start following after Jesus, all of a sudden jealousy sets in. And they go from being okay with Jesus to becoming his opponent. This is still early in that. Nicodemus, he's also a part of a group called the Sanhedrin. This is the ruling body of Israel or Palestine at the time. Basically, if you combined the legislative branch and the judicial branch into one, this would be the Sanhedrin. It's made up of 71 people, and they even had their own two-party system back then. It was made up of these guys called the Sadducees. They were more on the secular side, you know, dealing, you know, in the world. And then you had the other half, you had the Pharisees. And they were more on the religious side. Let me just be upfront with you and honest. They both kind of sucked in their own ways. And first and foremost, they cared about themselves. Sound like anyone else you know? Sorry, politicians. It is what it is. On top of that, to be a member of the Sanhedrin, he would have had to go above and beyond. Nicodemus would have had to memorize the Torah. If you're not familiar with what the Torah is, the Torah was God's law. He had to memorize the first five books of the Old Testament. Besides all those fun little stories and stuff, there were 613 laws in the Torah, and he would have known the whole Old Testament verbatim. Growing up, I did this thing in church called Bible Quiz, okay? And you, I just did it because you got to, like, travel and hang out with your friends and stuff. And they have, like, different level questions, like a 10-point question, a 20-point question, and then the really hard stuff that actually requires you to think. That'd be 30 points. Every Bible Quiz team had a Nicodemus. Every Bible Quiz team had me, too, okay? <laughs> and you, don't, you hear 30-point question. You actually take your hand off the buzzer. Nope, that's, uh, that's Nick down there. He's going to get it. That was his responsibility. That's who he was. Beyond that, though, there's this thing called the Mishnah. This is the codified scribal law, a.k.a. man-made additional laws on top of the 613 God laws. Um, there's a... Let me give you an example. There's a law in the Bible, in the Old Testament, 
about keeping the Sabbath, right? It's a day of the week that God tells us we need to rest, don't work, and hang out with Him. In the Mishnah, there are 24 additional chapters on the Sabbath alone. Textbook example of religion. They interpreted God's law and then they made extra demands on the people. But that's not it, folks. There's more to this too. There's also this thing called the Talmud. Basically, this is a commentary on the Mishnah. And so, one law becomes 24 chapters that then has a commentary that's 320 double pages long just on Sabbath alone. Burden. An example here, you're not supposed to work on the Sabbath. What if you want to get a drink of water out of the well? Well, you've got to you know, tie your bucket up and drop it in the wall. Uh-uh. You're not allowed to tie a knot on the Sabbath. Well, crud, I'm thirsty. What do I do? Well, we go to the Mishnah, and they actually made an exception because basically there's a woman's undergarment that had to be tied up. And so they're like, okay, we can make an exception for this woman's under undergarment. And so in a way not to break all these laws, people would take their bucket, take their wife's undergarment, tie a knot to the bucket and to the rope and drop the bucket into the well so they could get water and get their underwear wet. Okay. Let me make something clear to you. Commentaries are not bad. Explaining God's word is not bad. That's what I'm trying to do here tonight. That's what Jesus did Every day he was on this earth. People making up extra laws, bad. Man-made religion will always be bad and weigh people down. Before I go any further, I need to go ahead and give you a few uh, truth bombs of my own. How about that? Sets a premise for the rest of this message. First truth bomb, the truth doesn't need anything added to it or taken away. Okay? Highlight that, circle it. The truth doesn't need anything added to it or taken away. You see, religion goes both ways. When we add to God's truth, it becomes religion. Jesus tells the Pharisees that they have made the burden too hard for the people to carry, and they are keeping people out of heaven. But let me also make it clear to you, the same applies when we take away from God's truth also. Too many people pick and, truth, pick and choose the truth they like, and they ignore the ones we don't. Let me make this clear. Truth bomb number two. One truth in Bible will never negate another. One truth will never negate another. In this chapter, John 3.16, God loves us, correct? He loves us a lot. He gave his son. 
That's a big thing. And yet, two verses later, he says that you'll be judged for not believing in Jesus. Every truth comes from that understanding of God's love, but the rest of the truth in the Word can't be separated from that either. Truth must be seen from this perspective, and it must be seen through God's perspective. And whether it's because we water the truth down by adding to it, or we weaken the truth by taking it away, either way, it then becomes man-made, and it loses its power. I love a good cup of coffee. It's got to be made right. Too strong, it's nasty, it's bitter, no one wants to touch it. Too weak, you just have dirty coffee. God's law is just right, folks. His truth is right. 613 God laws. Man made them into millions. Jesus made it simple for us, okay? Love God, love people, love each other. You see, that's the difference between religion and a relationship with Jesus. Nicodemus knew everything. He, had, he was the best that this world had to offer, and he knew it wasn't working. You see, that's why he went to Jesus to ask for his help. Nicodemus needed more than knowledge to save him. He needed belief. Let me go ahead and read verse 18 for you. There is no judgment against anyone who believes in him, but anyone who does not believe in him has already been judged for not believing in God's one and only Son. Not rhetorical, I'll just ask. What's another cool Christian word for belief? Faith, yes. You, are, you guys are on tonight. You see, belief or faith is much more than knowing a fact. The Bible says that even the demons know that Jesus is the Son of God. That doesn't make him, make them his disciples. I had a friend that did Chi Alpha, and he said it like this, a faith or belief that is simply intellectual will be undermined when life doesn't make sense. Life doesn't make sense if it's all up here. Here is a great place to start. It's not the place to end. Life will screw you up. And so your faith, your belief, has to be something more. See, Nicodemus, he didn't need more knowledge. He needed a faith that led to change. And believing in Jesus means totally identifying with Jesus. You see, in the Greek, this word belief means it indicates a continuous action. Kind of like abiding in or grafting in to. This is an important part of believing. You need to understand something. Not all belief gets you into heaven. If you have a belief that has been stagnant, that doesn't continue daily with the Lord, if you have a belief or a thought from years ago that hasn't continued to stay connected to the Lord, that's not a saving faith, folks. 
Jesus wants a continual faith that begins by knowing him, continues by trusting him, and is fulfilled by obeying him. I'm going to say that again. I like that. Jesus wants a continuous faith that begins by knowing him, progresses by trusting in him, and is acted out by obeying his commands. You see, Jesus lays out for Nicodemus what it takes to have a belief or a faith that leads to heaven in John chapter 3. I, I, how many of you know that there are times that Jesus likes to blow stuff up in our lives before he can rebuild us? Sometimes he's got to do some demolition before he can actually build us up. Jesus, he starts pretty quickly dropping some truth bombs on Nicodemus. He clear, he's clearing out some old stuff so he can show him what wasn't getting him into heaven. And then in turn, Jesus has the room to give him what he needs. I also love, the thing I also love about Jesus he speaks the truth to us each in a way that we understand best. For some of you, God speaks to you through art. I imagine for Julie, he speaks to her through music. God often speaks to me when I'm reading his word. You see, Jesus speaks our vernacular. Even as I've talked to E before, God has spoken to E in Chinese. He has spoken to him in his native language. God speaks to us in our native language. I imagine God speaks to Angela in hillbilly. <laughs> so, <laughs> saw that coming. All right. <laughs> but he does that so we can understand we talked a couple weeks ago that Jesus often would speak in agricultural terms so that the people in biblical times could better understand. Jesus did the same with Nicodemus here, okay? He was educated far beyond like everyone else in the country, and Jesus spoke to him in a way that he understood. John the Baptist probably explains it best why we should have a faith in Jesus. And he actually explains it at the end of this chapter. We're not going to get into it tonight, but just let me read what he said here. He, talk about Jesus, has come from above and is greater than any, anyone else. We are of earth and we speak of earthly things, but he has come from heaven, and he is greater than anyone else. He testifies about what he has seen and heard, and yet so few people believe him. Nicodemus has the best the world has to offer, and he knows it's not enough. The thing is, he doesn't know how to change that. He goes to Jesus. He acknowledges Jesus' greatness. And what does Jesus do? He drops the first truth bomb on him. First truth bomb, you need a new start, Nicodemus. I tell you the truth, 
Unless you are born again, you cannot see the kingdom of God. I I always find it funny because, you know, it's not like Jesus said, thanks. Thanks for acknowledging who I am. Jesus didn't ask him, Nicodemus, why have you come to see me? No, Jesus didn't pull any punches. He immediately addresses Nicodemus' problem. You want to go to heaven, you need to start over. What you have tried has not worked for you, and maybe it's time to try something new. Nicodemus was this uber-religious, uber-ultra-educated person. And while that's not bad in itself, as we see with Jesus, many, many interactions with the Pharisees throughout the Gospels, their religion and their education caused them to be self-righteous. They thought they were totally correct. They thought they were morally superior to everyone else, especially the people they were supposed to be serving. And I doubt there is anyone here tonight that you're going to be like, yes, I am self-righteous. But here's the thing. Outside of the Word, when we judge people based on our own opinions, our own education, social status, our political beliefs, and we condemn them as inferior to us because they disagree, that's self-righteousness. Spend five minutes on Facebook, you'll see a lot. And let me also say one other thing to tie in with that. Too often, Christians love to write off other Christians as self-righteous because they are repeating God's truth. Let me just say, I'm not here to judge you. I don't have that right. A judge can condemn you. They can sentence you. I don't have that place. But I am here to tell you what the judge has said. That's our role as Christians, especially to other Christians. But anyone who does not believe, know, trust, and obey, in him has already been judged for not believing in God's one and only Son. Truth. Along those same lines, a life driven by self-reliance can just be as unfulfilling, correct? We learned that about the rich young ruler a couple weeks ago. Trying to rely on our own abilities, on our own talents, on our own effort will leave us lost and empty. And so here's the thing. The problem with being either self-righteous or self-reliant is self. The problem starts with us. And guess what? A new start can never begin with us either. And let me just say, this bomb throws Nicodemus for a loop. Uh, Verse 4 says, what do you mean? How can an old man go into his mother's womb and be born again? 
understand something here. Nicodemus didn't think it was physically possible to be born again. He was asking Jesus, in what way can someone be born again? This is a basically a rabbinical tradition, how they discuss, how they talk through the things. It was a common practice for them to eliminate the impossible so that only the truth remains. Also similar to a quote from Sherlock Holmes. Eliminate, eliminate the impossible, whatever remains, no matter how improbable, must be the truth. So if I physically cannot be born again, how can I be born again? How does this new start happen, Jesus? Can't turn my own page. And that brings us to Jesus' second truth bomb for him. You see, Nicodemus, a new start calls for a new source. Jesus said, I assure you, no one can enter the kingdom of God without being born of water and the Spirit. Humans can reproduce only human life, but the Holy Spirit gives birth to spiritual life. So don't be surprised when I say, you must be born again. Want more of God? We need more of the Holy Spirit. Deduction tells us that if we can't make a new start ourselves, if we can't physically restart our lives as a baby, well, the obvious conclusion is only God can produce the change that we want. And this change happens through the Holy Spirit. You see, the Holy Spirit is a part of God, like God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit. He has his own purpose and role. And the Holy Spirit didn't just magically pop up in the New Testament. He's been around in the whole Bible, okay? In the Old Testament, anytime you see the Spirit of God, that's the Holy Spirit. And he would come on select people at a select time for a select purpose. But all that changed when Jesus showed up. See, when Jesus showed up, the Holy Spirit became available to everyone who wants a change. Change comes from a connection to the Holy Spirit. When there becomes less and less of our nature and more and more of God's. And you see this connection throughout the whole New Testament. In John 16, 8, we are convicted by the Holy Spirit. He's our counselor. John 3, we are born in the Spirit. Acts 1.5, we are baptized, immersed in the Holy Spirit. Acts 1.8, we are empowered by the Spirit. Ephesians 1, we are sealed, that connection, that promise of eternal life by the Spirit. Galatians 5, we bear fruits by the Spirit. Romans 8, we walk in the Spirit. Ephesians 6, we pray in the Spirit. We use the sword of the Spirit. 1 Corinthians 12, there are gifts of the Spirit that God wants to use through us. Acts 2, we preach through the Spirit. John 16, we are comforted by the Spirit. And 2 Corinthians 13, we fellowship with the Spirit. 
Folks, Jesus did a great work. He was here for a short time. The Holy Spirit is here now. Let's stop neglecting him. And so what does, what's the Holy Spirit's purpose in this whole thing? It's called sanctification. Let's not use that. Let's go with he regenerates us. Jesus talks about we need to be born again. That means we need to be born from above in every single part of our lives. First uh, Thessalonians 5.23 says, Now may the God of peace make you holy in every way, and may your whole spirit and soul and body be kept blameless until our Lord Jesus Christ comes again. Three parts that the Holy Spirit rebirths in us. Our spirit, our soul, and the word for soul there is psyche, mind, and our bodies. And he starts with, we start with having a reborn spirit. You see, this is kind of a big event. This is something that can happen in an instant. At the end of service, I always ask, hey, does anyone want to accept Jesus as their Lord and Savior? At the moment you make a decision to accept Jesus as your Savior, the Spirit connects with God's Spirit. And immediately, what was dead comes alive. That happens in an instant. It doesn't stop there, though, folks. And this is where I think it catches a few people. You see, we got to go on to the next thing, the mind. The Holy Spirit renews our mind. And guess what? That's more of a process. How many of you know that it takes a long time to change things up here? There's things that are stuck in there from years and years ago that you have trouble getting rid of. Holy Spirit understands that. This is a process. But guess what? That begins to change the more we hang out with the Holy Spirit. Our thoughts begin to change. How we think, the sinful way of what we th- what, how we think and how we process stuff, that changes when we are hanging out and we allow the Holy Spirit to continue to rebirth our minds. And then when your soul's been reborn, and your mind's been reborn, your body can be repurposed. See, too often the world likes to say, let's start here. Change the outside. Change your look. Lose a few pounds. Nothing wrong with that. (laughs) Dress a little bit nicer. You will feel better on the inside then. And you know what? You might feel a little bit better, but it's not a long-term change. The rich young ruler, he had all that. It didn't change the fact he was empty. See, Jesus, he tells us the opposite. He says, start with the Spirit. Let God come in, take what was dead, and make it alive. When the Holy Spirit is invited in regularly, He's going to become our teacher, and He will help us to think brand new thoughts based on the truth and not on ourselves. And our spirits are alive. He renews our thoughts and our mind. Then our bodies can in turn be used by the Lord. And so a new start 
a new source. And I wish I had time to get into it, but he t- Jesus talks about what the wind does and compares it to the Holy Spirit. Both words are pneuma. He is talking about the Spirit. And basically you could translate it as the Spirit breathes where He will and you hear His voice. When you are connected to the Spirit, you will hear His voice. And Jesus is blowing Nicodemus' mind away by this point. I mean, everything He's telling him. He hasn't learned this much in all the years of study as he has from spending a few minutes in Jesus' presence. You want to know why I get up here week after week and harass you to spend time with Jesus? Is because you will learn so much more in a few minutes in his presence than you'll ever learn in a classroom. Truth. Everything you want is found in him. Stop looking other places for it. And so Nicodemus asks him, he's like, Jesus, how is this possible, man? See, for him, things have changed at this point. He's no longer a teacher seeking another teacher's wisdom. He isn't questioning what Jesus has said. Jesus is blown up all the walls in his life. He really just wants to know, how is it possible? You see, this is a common place to be when Jesus destroys our preconceived notions. See, when the walls come down in our lives, we often feel exposed. We often feel vulnerable. And you know what? Satan is going to whisper in your ear that those walls are good. Those walls are there to protect you. And all he cares about is keeping Jesus out. You see, without walls, we have to trust in Jesus. Verses 10, 13, let's hear Jesus replied, you're a respected Jewish teacher, and yet you don't understand these things. I assure you, we tell you what we know and have seen, and yet you won't believe our testimony. But if you don't believe me, then I'll tell you about the earthly things. Excuse me, if you don't believe me when I tell you about the earthly things, how can you possibly believe if I tell you about the heavenly things? No one has ever gone to heaven and returned, but the Son of Man has come down from heaven. See, we can't rely on the things we thought would keep us safe. See, real trust in the Lord is probably the most difficult thing for us to do. A trust that acknowledges he is God, a trust that acknowledges he's the creator of the universe, he's all-powerful, all-knowing, a trust that acknowledges he is good and that his ways are best, and because of that truth, I'm going to put my life into his hands and do what he says. You see, when the walls are torn down, we completely 
have to trust Jesus. And when we get to that place, that brings us to that final bond that Jesus has. You need a new salvation. Takes us up to John 3.16. I've been working with college students for 16 years now. I love you guys. I love what you, who you are. I love this ministry. Your generation is unique. Uh, I think this would actually, depending on the numbers you look at, this will be the last year incoming freshmen are millennials. If you, 2000, depends on what you want to look at, folks. <laughs> oh, the, the year you're born, 2000 is the last cutoff year. The thing is, your generation, if you look up characteristics, you're the most caring generation of all time. You care more about anyone else. You are passionate. You want to get involved. You want to make a difference in this world. I quite honestly, I, I believe that's why Feed One is being brought to life now. Because prior to this, it wouldn't have been the right generation. But you guys care. Another major trait of your generation is you're the most sharing generation of all time. You love to collaborate. You love to work together. You love teamwork. I'll be honest, my generation, we do stuff by ourselves. But you guys want to live in tribes together. And that's why you've seen an increase in life groups and small groups and churches and ministries succeed because that's what you all want. The funny characteristic, and it's true, is you're also probably the most staring generation of all time, too. A.K.A. you're always looking at a screen. You're always looking at your phone. You're always looking at a computer. You're always looking at something. You're always staring at something. And reality is, we all stare at something, whether it's physically or we're so focused maybe on our education or our jobs, or we're staring at our future and our relationships, and we stare because we want to succeed. But here's the thing, to have a successful relationship with the Lord, we need to be staring at Him. Period. Salvation takes focus. Every relationship takes focus. In the story... Jesus refers back to a story from Numbers chapter 21. Uh, do we have the picture of that staff? Some of our uh, medical folks, you'll be a little bit familiar with this. This is the rod of Asclepius. If I, I tried to listen into the Greek, I can't understand the word. <laughs> Basically, this is the symbol for the Greek god of healing. The symbol dates to probably four or 500 B.C. But guess what? There's another symbol that predates this one. It's the symbol that we see in Numbers 21. Basically, what was happening is the people had grown impatient. 
they had lost their focus. They started complaining, complaining about God, complaining about food, blah, blah, don't have this, don't have that, and yet God always provide everything. To punish them, God sent some snakes. They bit some people. People started dying. All of a sudden they realized, maybe this is a bad thing. And so they went to Moses and said, hey, help us out. What do I do? And he goes to God, and God's like, hey, make a bronze snake, put it on a staff, and if they choose to look at the snake, the snake, they will be healed. It wasn't a forced thing here, okay? Moses didn't line everyone up and force them to look at the bronze snake. If they chose to look at the snake, they could be healed. Jesus is telling Nicodemus that people are dying from the poison of sin in their lives. And soon he would be put up on a cross or a pole so that anyone who has the poison of sin in their lives could be saved if they choose to focus on him folks life is busy i get it stuff is going on but you got to look in the right direction or you're going to get hit by a bus if you focus on the lord it's going to change everything forever we can have the life that God has always intended for each of you. For this is how God loved the world. He gave His one and only Son so that everyone who believes in Him will not perish, but have eternal life. God sent His Son into the world not to judge the world, but to save the world through Him. That's how we get to the truth that Jesus wants. Bow your heads, close your eyes.